Welcome to Tech Live. Stephanie Christopher here, CEO of the Executive Connection. We connect leaders with a trusted network of people who help them succeed. Today, I'm speaking to Debbie Haskey-Leventhal, an awarded and well-published professor of business management and the MBA director at Macquarie University in Sydney, Australia. So Debbie has over 60 academic articles, five books, a TED Talk, and dedicates her teaching, research and knowledge to creating impact and enabling others to find meaningfulness and purpose. Debbie has a really interesting background. A tragedy led her family to the Kabbalah Centre years before Madonna and other celebrities, where she grew up really in a cult-like atmosphere until she managed to escape under the threat of an arranged marriage. Higher education and volunteering transformed Debbie's life and she has since devoted her entire career to studying the pro-social behaviour of individuals and companies. Debbie, welcome to Tech Live. How good it is to be here today. Thanks it's, for having it's me. It's always <laughs> wonderful to talk with you. So can we start with your story, with your early story? And I mean, the bit in there, it kind of makes it almost trite, mm. saying before Madonna and the other celebrities joined it, but that's where we've heard it. About exactly. the Kabbalah Center. But we were there on the early, early days. You really were. So can you tell us what happened to you and your family? So the reason my mom joined the Kabbalah Center when I was five was a family tragedy, the mm. worst one imaginable, mm. which is losing a child. Yeah. So when she was pregnant with me, they discovered that my brother had cancer. Mm. And when I was born, it was all about treatment and chemotherapy. But very sadly, after three years, he passed away. He was only 10 and I was mm. only three. And I don't remember a lot about my brother. I remember him very vaguely. But what I do remember is growing up with a bereaved mother, which is very frightening. Mm. Um, you feel like... Your mom is there, but she's not really there. Yeah. And it's completely understandable. Yeah. But as a three-year-old, it was very frightening. Yeah. And also this sense that you're not enough to make your mother happy anymore. And that was something that stayed with me for many, many years. You try as a child to make your mother happy, but she's sitting on the floor crying, and there's not a lot that you can do. And this uh, feeling of unenoughness <laughs> is something that, so yeah, it's a word I made up, but it's something that really um, walks with me, with me for the rest of my life. So it was a very sad atmosphere to grow up in. And when I was five, she stumbled upon an ad in the newspaper inviting people for free um, opening lecture about Kabbalah, and she went, and then there. And this was in Israel. This was in Israel, 1970s, Tel Aviv, small basement, and she goes there. She listens to Rabbi Berg, the Rav, talking about the secrets of Jewish mysticism and trying to impart meaning to everything around us. And she started talking to him, and he tells her that my brother died so that she and her family can join the Kabbalah Center and spread the light. And for a woman who was desperately searching for some comfort and a sense of meaning. And purpose. And purpose. Mm. And maybe some kind of joy. <laughs> yeah. That was all she needed. And so she dragged all of us 
Yeah, and I and I really serious your, about dragging because my father, father was forced to join; otherwise, she would have left him. I, I read in your book the part about the rules of television. That there was no television. Was it Friday night? Yes. Yeah, so on the Sabbath, yeah. Shabbat, we were not allowed to turn on electricity, television, radio, anything of that sort. So <laughs> I remember them. He was going to watch television on Friday and she was going to, to the bedroom. And he would say, oh, you have to come. They're talking about the Torah, the Bible. And she's like, no, I'm not going. <laughs> so they would argue. And then he realized that he, she wanted her. He has to join. Right. So he joined the Kabbalah Center. And we had not much of a say about it anyway. Yeah. I was five. I thought from now on, we're religious. You're not allowed to do one, two, three, four, five. 700, and that's <laughs> that's what our life became. And so it was you, your older sister, and a younger brother? Yes. Yeah, so mm. my first brother died in July 1976, and my younger brother was born in November. Okay. So, yeah, oh, imagine the mm. unattainable expectations of mm. trying to fill the void. So it was, yeah, it was a complicated family. And then we joined the Kabbalah Center and there was something wonderful about it. And I have to say today with all the horror that I look back into it, but there was a sense of togetherness. And belonging. I and imagine. belonging and everyone doing the, the high holidays and the, the Shabbats together and singing together and hugging. And um, it was really beautiful. You know, there was a lot of feeling of holiness, a feeling of we're better than others because we've seen the light. <laughs> and, and you know, just writing the book, there was a song that came back to me that we all used to sing together, which means for my brothers and my companions, I ask peace unto thee. And we would hug together and sing that for hours, the same line mm. over and over again. But it was so moving that when I was writing the book, I went back and I listened to it and I had tears mm. streaming down my cheeks because there was something so moving about it that I still kind of miss today. But it came at a very, very high price because joining a cult meant that we're giving up a lot of our freedoms and that the Rav and his wife, Karen, are controlling everything. And I mean everything about our and lives. That's the shame about it, isn't it? <laughs> Again, when I read it, that that I read it in the book, that some of the fundamentals you're talking about have so much meaning, but why does it need to be about one person or two people and actually what they want? Isn't it interesting? The yeah. psychology of cults, yeah. because it happens so many times. Yeah. So someone comes up with a nice idea or, you know, his idea was to teach Kabbalah, which was not accessible to almost anyone, mm. to teach it to everyone, including mm. women. It's a really nice idea. Mm. And there is some some wisdom and some beauty in Kabbalah. And so the, the idea in a nutshell is really nice. But interestingly, once people start joining, the person with the idea, the person with the idea becomes the leader. Yeah. Everyone else becomes the followers. And then they, you know, the person with the idea <laughs> becomes so powerful and then power and all the resources that come with it change them. And there's always, not always, but so often there's such a nasty, almost evil side to that power that it, it crosses over into something that's so far from the original purpose of the idea. It happens 
time and time again. I know we're getting to a general cult sort of. (laughs) Cult psychology. Yeah, yeah. Uh, But it is interesting because when you start having thousands of followers who think that you are a a demigod, Mm -hmm. um, it changes who you are and your ability to control people changes who you are. And I think that most of the time it doesn't change people to a better person. (laughs) And so we have to be very careful with saying, okay, everyone should now follow me and follow this idea because usually... In the end, it becomes something quite twisted. So mm-hmm. we have to be very careful about listening to people who have all the answers and telling us you just have to give up some of your freedoms to, you know, gain access to these answers. So we so have to be very careful. So that's the question, isn't it? That's the kind of point. So you said that it, you know, all the rules. You said seventy rules or how many rules? Um, what was it like for you growing up? Because they were good times, as you said yes. at the beginning, but there was joy for you, wasn't there? There yeah. was joy. There was a sense of purpose. Mm. I really felt, especially since I was 16 and became very devoted, yeah. I felt really lucky, really privileged that I get to spread what we call the light. Mm. And the light was the name that we call the divine. So we didn't say God as much as the light, but also the light of Kabbalah, spreading the light, giving people access to the light. And we were doing a lot of odd rituals as part of it. And we all obeyed because we really thought that they were good for us from (laughs) rolling in the snow naked, uh, going together to big um, lakes and, and just, you know, sort of in a twisted baptism. We all dived in naked. Men and women separately, yes, Mm. but we were like a group of 100 women. And imagine you were a 10-year-old child. (laughs) That could be quite traumatizing. Um, So we used to have all these different rituals. The one that really scarred me the most was when we slaughtered chickens just before Yom Kippur, Mm. which is the highest um, or the holiest day in Judaism, it's the day of atonement because God decides if you're going to live or die. So you try to really do everything in your power to convince him that you are worthy of living. And so one of the things that we used to do was we used to go to the market in the middle of the night. It was always very dramatic. <laughs> so was like, yeah, we could do it during the day, but let's do it in the middle of the night. It's more of a statement. It's more, yeah, yeah. it's more bizarre. So we used to go to the market in the middle of the night, and then my parents would buy this chicken. Everyone bought chicken. They told me, hold the chicken. I would hold his hand, and I loved animals growing up. I really did. I still do. And I would hold this chicken and I would pet it. So, you know, until this day, I'm raising chickens, you know, as pets now. Mm. So I love holding them and patting them and they get, you know, really calm. And and then they would take the chicken and circle it over my head and say, this <laughs> this chicken will go to, this is your atonement. This chicken will go to life. Sorry, this chicken will go to death and you will go to life. And then they would just slaughter the chicken in front of my very young eyes. And not only that, then they would say, oh, there is another good deed that you have to do according to the Torah, to the Bible. You have to cover the blood with sand. So here is some sand, cover the blood. It was all very, very weird and very traumatizing. So that was, you know, some of the rituals that we had. But there were other ways of controlling our identity. They changed my name. I I, yeah. I was born with the name Adi, which means the jewel, and they changed it to Devora when I was seven. Mm. And it wasn't just changing my name. There was a whole ritual of rebirth. So I was reborn as a devoted Kabbalah Center follower. 
and our, you know, what we were wearing, what we were doing. We didn't do anything without consulting the Rav. Their control in our life was just unlimited. So that was that was my childhood. <laughs> A question before we get to your later and early adulthood. How did they, the Bergs, maintain control as the numbers of followers became larger? So it's really interesting. They had a few techniques which are later when I read about uh, cults. It's not that original. But one of the things that they do is they turn off your critical thinking. Mm -hmm. So they say, if you have any thoughts that will or they might divert you from the Kabbalah way, this is what we call in Kabbalah klipot or empty shells. So these are the way of the Satan to control you. So if you have any doubts, that's the Satan talking. Right. So that way they turn off all your critical thinking because if you start having doubts, you know, oh, that's not me, that's Satan speaking. <laughs> so I better not listen to these doubts. And if anyone is trying to convince you or show you another angle, they're also empty shells. So over the years, you know, when people try to tell us, well, listen, we could see that there are some things happening there that are not okay. And we're like, no, 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 empty shells, Satan, and we're not listening. And that was a really good way to control everyone. Also, for a lot of them, they had nothing to go back to. Mm -hmm. So they give up their jobs, they sell their house, leave part they of sometimes their family. leave their family, mm -hmm. their spouses, and then at some point, Karen, another way of control, started to arrange people for marriage. And so she would say, Stephanie, you marry Jack, and you had to do it. And so that was a way for you to invest, you know, yourself in the Kabbalah Center. And once you had a child, you either left the entire family, which was very challenging to do, or you couldn't live at all. Because once you, you had doubts, but your husband didn't, you can't leave because he would maintain control over the children. So that was that was very difficult for people to leave. And it's really interesting because I spoke to many people who left the Kabbalah Center and some of them reached out to me after the book was published. And you feel like you were almost not even brainwashed. You were like some under some kind of spell that you, you when you get out, you said, what was I doing? Why was I listening to them? Why did I do all these things? But you really are, you feel like you're under some spell and you're brainwashed and it's very, very hard to see the reason that you, you and I might see now that, you know, I'm telling you things and you say, whoa, that's, that's wrong. But when you're inside, it's very, very hard. And even if you see something that's wrong, you're so invested that you try to ignore it, turn a blind eye. And you were a child. I was. So has there been any pushback on you with your book or on people who have left from some of the well-regarded, famous people who are Madonna didn't call me. She did. That's <laughs> what I, I was kind of wondering what she had to say. So I know from other kind of, you know, powerful, somewhat semi-celebrity organisations, anyone who leaves, there's quite a public pushback yeah. on it, but nothing like that. Well, the book was only published in Australia to date. Right. I believe it if will if it will be published in the US, we might get a bit more responses to well, it. Well, why don't we have you and Redo Madonna here on Tech Live and we'll all talk Let's together. Let's do that. We'll, you know, <laughs> it's <fresh enough. laughs> 
So could I take you further then into, you know, 18, the time when you decided to leave and I'd love to get to the impact that's had on what you've done with your life since. What a year it was. So I'm 18, I'm just finishing high school and I'm joining a commune of women in Tel Aviv so desperate and excited to spread the light. And so we lived like 12 women in this small apartment in Tel Aviv and every morning we would go out and sell the books. We call it harisha or plowing, which meant just walking on the streets for hours and hours and trying to sell the Rav's books um, and to convince people to join the Kabbalah Center, give money to charity, and by charity it means the Kabbalah Center. Um, And so that's what we did all day, every day. In the morning we used to go to offices and factories and and it was really like weird places that we ended up going. And how successful were you at doing that? While in Tel Aviv was pretty good, Mm. you really learn – salesmanship kind of techniques. (laughs) What do you say and how do you get people to, and how not to take no for an answer, something that I still Mm. know today. (laughs) So that was, you know, we really, because I, we used to most of the time go in pairs. Mm. So I would listen to the more experienced one and what they were saying and how we tried to sell it. We had all these different spills that we're using to try and sell the books. And it was pretty successful. And in the nights we used to go to private residencies. And just knock on people's doors and Mm. just walk into people's houses Mm. and apartments. It was, I don't think it was very safe, but safety was not a concern. And after a few months, one of my biggest wishes came true and they sent me to an emerging branch in Paris. Because by then, the Kabbalah Center was all over the, the place. At some point, the Bergs moved to the U.S. They opened a big branch in New York and later in L.A. And it became pretty, pretty big. Mm-hmm. And they became very rich. It was quite um It was evident. quite a shift. You see that in the book. It was Absolutely. really a shift for them. And so I was sent to Paris and I was so happy with another two women from my commune. And we arrived in Paris, we are 14 people in one small apartment. 14. 14. Three of us, three girls, are sleeping in one bedroom and there's not enough room, so one is sleeping underneath the bed. And so we, we were sent every morning by ourselves to try and get into people's houses and offices and sell the books. Now it's much harder because by back then we still tried to mainly target Jews Uh, So it was hard to find them, (laughs) harder than in Israel, obviously. My French was okay, uh, but not that great. And so we just walked for hours and hours and hours, and I became an expert because a lot of these houses had a code, and I I learned, they taught us how to hide behind a tree and see someone press the code and then go and press after it or wait until someone opens the door and sneak in. Mm And in Paris, a lot of these buildings had concierge who did not love me. And they would just <laughs> chase me, <laughs> just throw me out. And it was it was very difficult. And at some point, I was not selling enough books. And I know that we had to handle in a report every evening of how much we sold, how much money we brought in, and Karen was looking at it. So I knew that Karen was not happy with my performance. And I should just say it, I did not get paid. <laughs> At any point, I did not get paid. So most of us were working in what you might see today as modern slavery. Were you fed? Not well. Not well. So the 
The other thing that I saw while I was there is that the women who were married um, after the the match made by Karen, which is really the same thing in Kabbalah, was the same thing as saying match made by heaven. Mm. Uh, we really believed in that, that Karen was all enlightened and she could see your soulmate and tell you he's your soulmate and you just... And that was my my second wish was to to be married like that. And I kept dreaming about it. We used to dance a lot with wedding songs and really like we were obsessed. And so I saw these women after their perfect wedding and they were very miserable and they were trapped in this apartment and they had to cook for us. So that's asking mm. about food. Yeah, we we, yeah. Made, we ate a lot of rice. <laughs> <laughs> there was a lot of carbs happening then. But it was um, it was just seeing their misery that made me think, you know, there was all this promise, we're doing something that's really good, you marry your soulmate, you live happily ever after, and they lived miserably ever after. And I remember their husbands yelling at them, you know, you're not spiritual enough, why are you crying, why are you upset, you have to be more spiritual. And I thought, oh my goodness, I don't want that. And so at some point I hurt my back carrying all these books all day, you know, along and around Paris. And I was thrown back to Tel Aviv. And then I was supposed to continue the work I was doing in Tel Aviv. But I said to myself, I want time to think. For the first time in my entire life, well, I was only 19. But for the first time, I said, I want the time to actually think and ask questions and look for answers that are not fed to me by the Bergs. And it was very, very difficult at first. I keep saying it was as liberating as jumping off an airplane without a parachute. Yeah. And that's that's the beginning of my meaning search and my new life. It's an incredible story. And there's something I want to pick up that you said at the beginning, and it's about your family and about you. And you said um, not enoughness. You said something along those lines. <laughs> yes. But that feeling as a child that you weren't enough. Mm. How did that how has that impacted you through your life? It still does. I'm working on it. Yeah. I had an article yesterday that we submitted a year and a half ago to a really, really good journal. And after three rounds of revise and resubmit, it got rejected. Uh-huh. And it comes back to me at these moments where I'm not good enough. If mm. I were good enough, I could have gotten the paper accepted. So it always comes back to this feeling of I'm not, I'm not good enough. Mm. Um, even with the book, you know. So it's yeah, <laughs> it's it's selling, but it didn't become a bestseller because I'm not good enough. And that's something I really have to work on all the time, and to say to myself, I am enough. What I'm doing is I'm trying in my own way to create a positive impact and I create a ripple effect of positiveness that I will never even know the magnitude of what I'm doing because I work with students, I work with leaders, I work with companies and and some of them change and then they go on to change others. And so that's what I try to focus on and that what gives me a sense of meaning and mm. mattering in what mm. I, I do. And maybe that's why I have such a profound need to to have that sense of meaning. And that's why I wrote the book, because I grew up in this feeling of not being enough. 
is that I need to matter and my life need to matter. And what I found through years of work and research is that the best way for you to feel that you matter is by contributing to others and making a difference in other people's lives. Absolutely. And the work you're doing is so powerful now and helping organisations and leaders and individuals discover really their purpose. And I've just had a thought while I've heard your story for the second time and while I've read it, you know, so that's three times. You are so um, inspired by helping people see the light. So is this has everything that you had in your childhood and those experiences and your early adulthood led you into this but with a more meaningful and purposeful light that you would like people to see now? Yes. So yes and no. So on the one hand, maybe the way that I'm defining what it means to see the light. Yeah, I mean, I know it's <laughs> a big glib. To, but, yeah, but yeah. to really um, try to f- to have a meaningful life, not necessarily by subscribing to someone else's answers, faith, Mm. leadership, Mm. um, but to cultivate your own way, to trailblaze your own path. And that's the difference. It's a huge distinction, actually. That's the distinction. So, yes, I am trying to help people find meaning almost the same way that the Rabbi Berg and his wife try to help people find meaning. But I keep saying, and I say it in the book, I don't have all the answers. I don't know. I don't have a one-size-fits-all kind of a solution. I'm only telling you what I learned from research, but I'm not telling you how to do it. So here is an, an idea that I developed in the book, that when you tie your talent and your passion to your impact, you can live a more purposeful life. But I don't believe that you have one purpose that you need to discover And I don't believe that there is a one way in doing it. There are so many unlimited numbers of ways in which you can do it. And that's for you to find out. So it's a lot more individualistic approach to the collective approach that was presented to us in the Kabbalah Center. Thank you. And that's a great distinction. So passion, purpose, and it's about having impact. Yes. And that's so interesting when we're talking to business leaders because it's, Every business has an impact of some sort, doesn't it? And every leader makes an impact. Um, How do you – tell us about the work that you do do with organisations and with leaders. So in a really unaccepted story, um, I moved from 19-year-old me not knowing what I'm going to be doing in my life and the fear that my life will be meaningless and and empty – to going to university at the age of 20. And I do say that I really believe that higher education saves my life Mm. because I was at a point where I did not know what I'm going to be doing with my life. I didn't have any sense of purpose after leaving the Kabbalah Center. And I really had a really, a profound sense of void. And so joining higher education, I went to study philosophy because I wanted to be able to ask all the big questions, (laughs) but also volunteering through my degree. Um, So we worked in this um, organization where you tutor a child from a disadvantaged background, and in return you get half your tuition fee waived. It's an amazing project. And that opened my eyes to the feeling of what it really is to make a difference in someone else's life. It was not something obscure as spreading the light. 
I was really helping this kid. He was making friends. He was making academic progress. And I really felt, wow, I really did something important in my first year of my degree. And so I wanted to do more of that. And that led me at some point to become the volunteer coordinator and the vice manageress of the entire project. And then I went to do a master's degree in not-for-profit management, and I did a PhD on volunteering, which led me to where I am today, a professor of corporate social responsibility. With critical thinking skills. Yes. Put back in there. Exactly. <laughs> That's what Always. I thought. As soon as you said higher education, I thought, well, it's critical thinking. Yes, exactly. And I love that we were allowed, you know, for the first time in my life, People didn't tell me these are the answers that you need to know, but rather what questions do you want to ask? And that was incredible for mm. me because I was not allowed to ask questions. And uh, it really was perceived as a scene to even ask questions. So for me to be able to go to university and ask all the big questions and, and write essays and projects with my own ideas was really beautiful. And so... That kind of changed my life, and that's that was why I couldn't leave university. And I said for another degree and another degree, and then I became a professor. But also how the volunteering part of it and the sense of making a positive impact is something that stayed with me. And I kept asking, how can we do it first as individuals? So I, I've studied volunteering for many years. It was incredible experience. And then I thought, okay, that's on individual levels. What can companies do? And I remember about 15 years ago, I was watching a movie called The Corporation. And it's a very daunting movie. Mm -hmm. Three hours about everything that's evil and bad about the business world. And I remember feeling very angry afterwards. And I thought, we need to change something here. But then I decided instead of doing what they did in the movie, which was naming and shaming all these companies and the, the terrible effect that they had on our world, and many still do, I was going to try and focus on inspirational companies, ones that are really aiming to create a positive impact. So I looked into corporate social responsibility. I looked into social entrepreneurship and impact enterprises. I've seen companies that are really utilizing everything that they do to create a positive social impact. So as you said, yes, every company has an impact by the people it employs, by its products, services, the leadership. But can we look at the impact you create beyond your regular business to do something that's really important for the world? And how do you utilize who you are as a business, your DNA as a company, to become a force for good. And some people think I'm like this hippie professor looking at, <laughs> looking at these companies, Kumbaya, but we really are seeing an increasing number of companies that are now interested in genuinely, because we had a, a lot of greenwashing in the past, but now we see a wave of companies that are looking how to genuinely contribute to society's greatest problems and that's that's a big change. So could you as we as we kind of draw this all together, can you give us an example of an Australian company where you've seen this happen? So the easiest answer is around the social enterprise mm -hmm. and I love social enterprises for a while I was the director of the Master of Social Entrepreneurship and I was teaching social entrepreneurship at Macquarie University and to see companies that are established usually by young people, 
not because they wanted to sell a product, but because they wanted to change the world was really inspirational. So one of my favorite examples is thank you. Yes. Um, and to look at how um, Daniel Flynn and his friends started, a, they started off with a water company. They called it Thank You Water because Daniel discovered that 900 million people don't have access to clean water. He was only 19. What would most 19-year-old do? They would just say, oh, that's really sad and move on. But he thought about this problem with empathy. What if it was me? What if it was my family? And so he started this whole company with zero business knowledge and $1,000 to start a company that will sell water in order to build water projects in mm. the developing world. And it took them a really long time to succeed, but now they are a really fast-growing company in Australia and, and a great example. But there are many other companies in Australia, and we can think about the big ones, but I like a small one. I think it's a great example. Konica Minolta. Mm -hmm. um, I think we spoke about that in our previous conversation. So Konica Minolta is a printing Japanese company, and it has its Australian headquarters in Macquarie Park. And so I got to meet uh, Dr. David Cook while he was the managing director of Konica Minolta. And David had an incredible story, which he shared with me and later with my students, because his daughter went to volunteer in Cambodia, mm -hmm. and she discovered the terrible reality of um, sex, sex trafficking of little girls in Cambodia and, and this, these shelters for the survivors of sex trafficking. And she volunteered there, and then she got him to volunteer there. And then he says, what you see, you cannot unsee. And so whatever he saw that, he brought it back with him, and he was like, I'm going to use my company to change the world. They became advocate for the Modern Slavery Act. They became known for working for human rights. And he really managed to <laughs> leverage the entire company, its employees, and engagement went through the roof. And when we asked people, we surveyed them at some point, we asked, you know, what do you identify Konica Minolta as? And most people said human rights advocate, not so much a printing company. So its impact and purpose became the new way to define the company. Mm. And that was just incredible. And there are many companies like that in Australia and worldwide that people don't even hear about. They don't even know the work that they're doing, but they are utilizing who they are, what they know, the resources that they have to create a positive impact in the world. So interesting. What a line. What you see, you can't unsee. That's, that's very powerful. And I, I mean, we could continue this conversation and we will in different ways. But I think, I think who you are, Debbie, and the story that, that you have of your life and where it's brought you to today is so incredibly powerful and meaningful. And I love, I love your, um, uh, academic and personal view on what this could look like for organisations in our own community and for leaders. And as I said, I think it's a story that's definitely worth continuing and we will. But for today, Debbie, thank you so much for joining us on Tech Live. So that's Tech Live for today. CEOs are in the business of making decisions and leadership is the art of execution. I'm Stephanie Christopher and look forward to talking to you next time. Mm -hmm.